This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today's episode will be focused on the physical education context, but will be certainly interesting to anyone who is interested in phenomenology, embodiment, and movement culture. Eivind Standal is a professor at the Faculty of Education and International Studies at Oslo Metropolitan University, whose work has played a significant role in advancing our understanding of embodiment, habits, skills, and meaning in physical education. Eivind has published extensively on physical education, especially in relation to philosophy of physical education and phenomenology. He is the author of the book Phenomenology and Pedagogy in Physical Education, which was published by Routledge in 2016. Welcome to the podcast, Eivind, and I'm happy we finally found the time to do this. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Nora. As as I said, I I wanted to have you in the podcast for a long time. Like we had several discussions around our shared interest in meaning. And I think a funny story behind this is that I think the first time we met was in the Nietzsche house trip that was organized by Yunus Tunsel. And he has talked about Nietzsche in this podcast. Uh, some time ago as well but so we had some really nice talks hiking up the hills and and the mountains behind Nietzsche house and we lived in this apartment in the Nietzsche house and the main thing I remember from this trip was that when you get into our apartment like the smell of these running shoes Mm -hmm. and hiking shoes and clothes and it was just terrible like you would almost <laughs> faint when you come into the house and so you've written a lot about embodiment and i guess and and this experiential world of physical activity and physical mm-hmm. education and i guess this smell aspect of it is also something that is important so you have to learn to live with the smell <laughs> If you want to be an active person, yeah, 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 and I also it's maybe it's telling and perhaps relevant for some of the topics we will discuss today that something as bad and terrible as smelly shoes are connected to such good memories, and I think that you know, as someone who has been doing sports my whole life, I think. For instance, the locker rooms in different sports arena have their distinct, uh, their distinct auras of smell that, that is connected to memories. So the smells, the sense experiences, sort of shapes the memories of our life worlds. 
and I, you know, I used to to do track and field in my youth, and for many years afterwards, when spring came, I just had to go down to this track to feel the smell of tartan, the, the surface of the the track. So I think that this, yeah, the smell and and the memories of our life world is deeply connected. Yeah, what you said about the athletic track, that's certainly something that I can also remember. Like when you when the snow has melted and you can go mm. on the track, I think that's really mm. like a wonderful experience. Yeah. And also these many of these memories are really about these places and how it mm. felt and the wind in your face when mm. you were running mm. and yeah. and all those things that we don't maybe write enough about it i mean certainly there are scholars who are talking about this element mm. as well but it's so important yeah let's then move a little bit towards developing this concept of meaning which is the central concept of the podcast and and why i started it was to discuss different ideas different perspectives on meaning and what is meaningful movement and Your work has been advancing this for a long time. You have written extensively mm. on on physical education and a lot of concepts that are linked to meaning and mm. and so forth. So maybe we can start talking about phenomenology because that's really the central aspect and your contribution, for example, your book on phenomenology in physical education. Mm. So maybe we can start exploring that concept of meaning and phenomenological ideas a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I think that for this idea of meaning making and its connection to phenomenology has been um, it's been a part of the physical education literature for a long long time. When I was a student, I I encountered uh, this connection through the work of P.J. Arnold, who had written about meaning in movement in the 70s. And I think what was interesting and important for me in his work was that he connected meaning with, with education. So partly it was about justifying physical education as properly educative, as an educative subject, not merely as a fun break from sort of the real school subject or or as a provision of physical activity so the meaning making aspect was important for arnold to to establish physical education as an educative subject so it sort of has to do with being an educated that is physically educated person And for for Arnold, meaning was about getting pupils so on the inside of movement activities and movement cultures. So I think that that's where I found the origin of meaning and phenomenology in physical education. But others have also explored this issue earlier. Yeah, and then it was something I had been reading about writing about for quite a while so when i when i had a sabbatical some years ago i i wanted to connect sort of my interest in phenomenological philosophy and the pedagogy of physical education and 
And that was how this book that I wrote came about. Yeah. And one of the key thinkers in the existential phenomenological tradition that you're drawing on is is Merleau-Ponty as well. And his his works and his philosophy hasn't been discussed in this podcast so much yet. So maybe a few things about his work and why, why is that so important for our understanding of human movement? Yeah, I think that his uh, Merleau-Ponty um, is sometimes uh, talked about as the philosopher of the body. So he he was very deeply interested in in uh, how the the body is involved in perception. So that that was his main work, the the phenomenology of perception, in which he did, uh, as uh, other phenomenologists did took a, a non, non-dualistic approach. He, he, he sort of critiqued the Cartesian idea of the dualistic perception of the, the mind and body as different substances. So he was interested in, in exploring and understanding how the body shapes the world, as Sean Gallagher has termed it, and, and also how the world shapes our embodied experiences. And I think that he has been picked up in philosophy of sports, partly because he was in in the phenomenology of perception. He has a long chapter on the acquisition of motor habits mm-hmm. of, about motor learning, and that chapter has had a profound influence on on philosophy of sport and physical education. And and he the way he, he goes about in in that chapter is to to say that there are two main directions. One which is a behavioristic or empiricistic approach in which the world comes to the person from the outside. It's like the outside forces that impinges on the person. And then there is this intellectualistic approach in which it is like the human body or the human mind as an information processing unit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think we can see both of these approaches to, to motor learning. And then Merleau-Ponty's strategy was to criticize these two uh, approaches and say that while both of them, them had something true to them, they... Both were mistaken in some um, important ways, and that is by f- by forgetting the body. So he, in both in this chapter on motor learning and in the whole of the phenomenology of perception, he's always trying to find this third way between behaviorism and intellectualism. Mm-hmm. So my interest has been to study his work and in order to analyze embodied learning. And while the phenomenology of perception is his major work and most cited work, he he wrote a book prior to that, which was called The Structure of Behavior. And that was a a book in which he he was writing quite a bit about learning. He he sort of criticized especially the behavioristic theories which, which were the dominant learning theories at his time. And I think that in, in relation to, to the topic of this podcast, which is meaning, he, he's, he, one of his conclusions there was that while the behaviorists, they try to establish sort of a causal 
relationship between stimulus and response. Merleau-Ponty said that there has to be a relation of meaning between these stimuli in, in our uh, surroundings and the movement responses that we, we give. So, so he actually introduced the term meaning to this embodied learning perspective already then. Yeah, but so if we think of habits, we can talk about our movement habits. Mm. I would go for a walk after I worked a little bit because like, I just feel that now I want to go out and move or we have a habit of making coffee and, you know, people who are active, they have a habit of going running and they might not really think about it that much. They just pretty much do it. So what kind of meaning is there going on? Is it something that we might not be aware of that meaning ourselves? Mm, yeah. yeah, I think that we can distinguish between at least two different kinds of habits. One is, would say, I'm in the habit of walking after work or I'm, I'm in the habit of running. But then mm. I think that he, the way... Merleau-Ponty talks about habit. It's it's not so much about these things that we regularly do. It's it's about how we do things. It's uh, so it's connected to 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 knowledge, to practical knowledge. Right. So one of the way we can connect this to meaning is to say that uh, to have practical knowledge, which means to to do things in in a habitual way maybe that's not the right way of phrasing it because talking about habits is a little bit difficult because habits has a bad reputation right. uh, like these blind repetitions that we do exactly but yeah. that's not not quite what uh, Merleau-Ponty or even John Dewey meant with habits they are flexible and situational but they are they are things we do without the intervention of conscious thought. So if you think about it that way, and to think about practical knowledge as our sort of as a familiar way of relating to the world, to the world of movement, for instance, then we can think about this the life world of movement as having certain meaning structures. And to have practical knowledge is to move about these meaning structures in an effortless and skilled way. Mm-hmm. So it's it's meaning in a pre-reflective sense. Right. I think that that's the so one way of understanding the relationship between habits and meaning. Yeah, Gunnar Breivik was talking about in the podcast that it's difficult for people to say why their life is meaningful or why the things that they do are meaningful but there is this background that kind of things hang together yeah phenomenologists would explain that as sort of the the life world in which there is a tacit background that we sort of that has to be there for us to exist but that we we do not really reflect on it all the time yeah but it's it's the background that makes it possible for us to have these experiences and, yeah, and yeah. be this way. 
And they are pre-reflective in the sense that we do not have to reflect on them, but we can always bring them to our reflective awareness. They are not tacit in the sense that they are impossible to express. It's just Mm. that we don't, in the normal course of event, we, we do not have to reflect on them. Yeah. You mentioned that important part of phenomenological thinking and and Merle Ponty is also this central attention to to the human body or our embodiment. Mm. And so you would think that all physical education is <laughs> very much about embodiment because that's so central to it. But is is there a lack or something that is maybe not captured about embodiment in other approaches and why does phenomenology then really help us to extend our understanding if phenomenology is right in putting the body at the center stage as something that is inescapably a part of us then there is no physical education that is not embodied yeah but what it I think that for me, by turning attention to embodiment or embodied learning in the phenomenological sense, is that we get to see other aspects of the human body than if we apply other perspectives to physical education. I think that there are no one who who would, no one in the right mind would say that physical education is not a subject about the body, but how it is a subject about the body and what it means to be a body-linked subject. I think that's where phenomenology can sort of deepen our understanding about the school subject. Yeah. Can you give some examples that are a little bit more tangible? One way I've been... I try to illustrate this is by talking about physical activity because the sort of the, the standard definition of physical activity is that it's uh, connected to an increase in energy expenditure uh, beyond resting metabolic state or something like that mm-hmm. okay yeah. so, so that's the physiological definition but then Uh, we could say that that's a meaningless definition of physical activity and it's not but it's not really meaningless for a physiologist but it's meaningless for the person who is moving because under that definition it doesn't matter if you are running on a treadmill with a gun to your head or if you're out running together with your friend in beautiful scenery so so that's that's one way that phenomenology adds to our understanding is to point to this the meaningful experience of movement which not everyone is interested in Um, so phenomenology adds this experiential dimension to uh, to our understanding of physical education what does it mean for the pupil as an embodied subject to be in movement, to learn certain movements. So the experience of taking part in a competition in physical education or 
what does it mean when we talk about the joy of movement or fun? So phenomenology helps us to understand in a maybe in a deeper sense what what fun is like for different individuals. Mm. Yeah, and the diversity of experience, how a certain activity in the physical education class can also be experienced. So if you say that we just were interested in, you mentioned the physiological definition, mm. and from that perspective, it might be that the same thing is happening for everyone. So maybe yes. they are all running for 15 minutes, but so then we need something else than that if we want to understand how people might continue <clears throat> habit of running also mm. later on in their mm. life yeah 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 and I, and maybe also for the teacher say my main job is to educate physical education teachers and one of the things that i take or the ideas that i take from phenomenology to them is to try to help them to bracket their own experiences and try to show them that you should maybe you should try to start from the experiences of the persons that you meet in your class rather to, than to automatically assume that your own experiences of being physically active or being in movement is something that's you know easily transferable to others so this mm. phenomenological idea of bracketing your own pre-understanding in order to get a grip on what the other person is experienced. I think that's that's a very sort of tangible idea to provide teachers with. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important aspect. And especially when a lot of physical education teachers are the ones who really enjoy physical activity and sports mm -hmm. and who mm -hmm. had like really good experiences so yes. it might not be yes. easy to step in the shoes of of somebody who doesn't find it enjoyable or yeah yes yeah, yeah. i i try to tell them that they are severely able-bodied that they have their relationship to physical activity is not a normal experience or a normal relationship to physical activity yeah. they meet people who are very different from themselves mm -hmm. i've also recently read some studies on like mood and emotion in sport and it does seem that the ones who are very physically active or doing a lot of sport and activity that they also you know get this feel good effect from from being active mm. but that same kind of response doesn't happen for for people who are not used to that. Mm. A lot of that is part of our expectations that, you know, you have been a runner and I've been a runner. And to some extent, we both are. And I, I would think that both of us have the expectation that if you go for a run, I will feel good after that. Mm, Probably mm. I'll feel good during the run, but also mm. after that. Mm. But that's that's not to say that everybody is going to feel great after a run. So we always need to be really aware mm. of that, just like you said. Mm. Yeah, I guess 
maybe one more thing to talk about in your book before we move to mm. other things. I, I was quite interested, you are lifting up that often phenomenological approaches are, are thought to be quite blind to difference, mm. to uh, something that doesn't really account for, you mm. mentioned ability, disability, mm. Mm. cultural yeah. difference, yeah. privileged groups, marginalized groups. Yeah. And But you are arguing that, that that's certainly not the case, that phenomenology can be used to inform yeah. physical education that that is sensitive and that is competent to account for, for diversity in, in many yeah. respects. So maybe you can expand on that a bit. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fairly standard critique of phenomenology that it's uh, universalistic, um, that it's not able to account for difference, as you say. And, and I think that um, that critique is... It, it has some merits when it's directed towards these uh, philosophers who lived in the early 1900s towards 1950s. Mm-hmm. But it, it for many years now, there are more modern or newer versions of phenomenology, phenomenological scholars who have taken the insights of Husserl and Merleau-Ponty and applied it to issues concerning gender and uh, disability, which which is something that I have been working with also. For instance, um, Iris Young, who in in the I think it was in the 1980s, wrote this essay, "Throwing Like a Girl," yeah, in which she analyzed. Um, experiences of young women and their movement and how they they were restricted in movement um, due to sort of cultural pressure and she utilized and Merleau-Ponty's framework in order to highlight uh, this process and the last decade or so this has been done by by many so they call themselves critical phenomenologists who sort of uses the insight and and the, the legitimate critique that uh, that some critical scholars gave to phenomenology they use this critique and also the phenomenological insights to to sort of try to understand how phenomenology can help us uh, uh, throw light uh, on difference and um, power relationships and it is connected to when we talked earlier about this the life world approach and the things that we take for granted and sort of this analysis of critical phenomenology is to show how the things that we take for granted that sort of seeps into our life world they can be they are pre-reflectively becoming a part of our habits, our way of being in the world. But there's always an open possibility to put reflective awareness on this background and in that way understand how power relationships have influenced um, our life world and the assumptions that we have. Yeah, 
Yeah, so phenomenology can certainly be put into work also also to mm. look into just like you said gender mm. ability disability yeah mm. that's really important yeah i i think this is a really good place to stop for our part one so yeah thank you so much for for the discussion so far well, thank you Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old-school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.